We'll continue now in our study of the Gospel of John. We have arrived at verse number 14 in the first chapter in consideration of what's considered the hypostatic union. Our scripture text was, and still is, John 1, 14, which states, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Shall I now look to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we give thanks for this Sabbath day, for many are still seeking for the Messiah, and yet you revealed him by your will. We thank you, Father, that you've opened your eyes, our eyes, ears, and hearts to see, hear, and believe by your Spirit. For now we know the identity of the Messiah. Therefore, be with your servant as he feeds and teach your sheep. And to them, may they come with a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word. In Christ's most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, as I stated before, when we came to the hypostatic union last su Lord, su Lord's Day, uh, I told you this was going to be a multi-part series, but with good intention. I believe that explaining this doctrine, uh, 45 minutes may not be enough, <laughs> especially if you want to actually try to be concise. And like I said before, I want to make sure that this is palpable, something where when you're having discussion with various people, so whoever come across, you're able to defend your faith. And I think that's pretty important. So this doctrine in regards to the hypostatic unit resolves within uh, Christ is, is quite, quite important. So, by recollection, we can see already, as I stated before, by verse number 14, by the apostle making it very known, God the Son has come in the form of man. And remember, to write this adage in his gospel, and I bring again back to the intro, he was to correct the wicked blasphemies of Ebion and Serinthius. Now, in this sermon in particular, we're going to continue our progression of thought. In the last sermon, we were looking from the Old Testament the scriptures that show proofs of the distinguishment between the two natures that is in Christ, the mediator. Today, we will now see the communication of the two properties in Christ himself. And secondly, we will see the union of both natures at play. Sounds like a lot. It is not. So definitely bear with me. And hang on for this ride. <laughs> now, with that being said, when we last was here in the previous sermon, I wanted to make sure from jump that we define from the Reformed faith, nonetheless, what is the doctrinal truth in regards to the hypostatic union. We stated, and I quote, the divine nature was conjoined and united with the human nature so much that the Son of God became the Son of Man, which 
the entire properties of each nature remain entire. Within this, the two natures constitute the one, Christ, the mediator. And remember, with the assistance of Calvin, we gave that analogy in regards to the way that we view man. We should also view the same way the position that Christ extols the Godhead and the manhood. Of which, when we came to the verse in the first clause, and I even got started from it from a quick perspective of making a particular clarification. The word became flesh. It did not change, or Christ did not change into the flesh, nor did he come intermingled. And I want to make sure that portion of it was very clear. In fact, when we consider the theophanies, and that's why I brought your attention to the Old Testament, we want to come to some sort of clarity as to how God interacted with man before we come to the New Testament where it was revealed that God the Son was to come in the form of man. And it was quite clear based on what was being spoken of in the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament saints have? Not just from what was exclaimed with the prophets, but also noting David making pretty clear throughout his Psalms to show that God the Son was to come and redeem his people. And I concluded with Isaiah 53 to show the suffering of which he was to partake and make his sacrifice sufficient and efficacious to justify the sins of his people. All that being said, as we segue here to now the communication of the two properties being found in Christ, the mediator, I look to our confession in chapter 8. If you're familiar with it, it's by section 1a and 4a. We see in this, the divine state, it pleased God and his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, of which, by insertion, this office that the Lord Jesus took, he did most willingly. From the ode, Isaiah 42.1, the prophet states, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Likewise, in Philippians 2.8, we have here, therefore, and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. So this office of mediator, which Christ takes willingly, shows that it was indeed necessary. But you know, I believe the requisites or the expectations that comes with the office does not get spoken of enough, especially considering the aspect of the doctrine which is considered the hypostatic union. In fact, I will tickle your intellect by posing you this question. 
If the mediator is not God, what will keep human beings from sinking under the infinite wrath of God or better yet, the power of death? But yet on the other hand, if the mediator is not man, who will perform perfect obedience to the law of God? You see, this is why it is important to understand the composition of which Christ took in regards to his office as the mediator. For undertaking this, he makes the union between the natures as our confession properly states here to show the works of each nature so that it might be accepted of God for us and we can rely on Christ as the, on the works of the whole person. In his forecoming in Isaiah 7, 14, note of which when he came into the world by his own name is there clarity given to him in regards to the acts he was to take in being the mediator. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. And then from the old, and we have more clarity in harmony showing on to the new. Matthew 1, 23. And I quote, she will give birth to a son and she will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. Now all this took place. So that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet will be fulfilled. Therefore, a reiteration of Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translate to mean God is with us. Now, by recollection from our last sermon again, we established, and I stated before, I came with the definition from the Reformed perspective of how to see the hypostatic union. But for as much as that definition can provide, some not understanding may not see so much as to how the two properties can be communicated in Christ taking the office of mediator. What do I mean by this? Well, could it be that as the Messiah had gained from a child and grew up to be a man, grew in his knowledge, learned and did things that we will see normal people do? Does this make evident that his divine nature was proven to be void? No. But rather, on the other hand, when the Messiah was making his declaration, showing that he had glory alike with the Father, does it show that then his human nature was actually empty? No. See, the understanding that I'm trying to convey here is that through the office of mediator, by his own namesake, which is Christ, as being the title holder, the communication of the two properties 
should be clear. I will allow Calvin to elaborate some more. Note this. Paul's assertion that he is the firstborn of every creature, that he is before all things, and by him all things consist, Colossians 1, 15 and 17. By his own declaration, he had had glory with the Father before the world was, and that he worked together with the Father are equally inapplicable to the man. See, Calvin is trying to point here that no man can make such statements unless he was being sent by God or have a particular affinity to know God on a personal level. I'll continue here where Calvin states, these and similar properties must be specifically assigned to his divinity. Ah, that is a show and proof to you that again, while the Messiah was here, he was able to make clear and reasonable note that he shared a bond with the Father. Now note, as Calvin continues, again, his being called the servant of the Father, it is that it is being said he grew in stature, in wisdom, and favor with God and man. He sought not his own glory, not to know the last day, not to speak of himself, not to do his own will. His being seen and handled applied entirely then to his humanity for God and cannot in any respects grow or work or um, I'm sorry, uh, in any respects grow in his knowledge for he is omniscient for he does everything after his own counsel. In fact, God cannot be seen and or handled. Therefore, Calvin concludes here. And yet he's not merely ascribed to these things separate to what will be considered his human nature, but he applies himself as is being suitable because he takes the office of being the mediator. So this is where all this is revolving around. In order to make clear and sound of what is entailed with the hypostatic union, you must understand Christ's effect as being the mediator in the covenant of grace. Our confession states, and it goes through questions, unlike the shorter catechism who makes light and for good reason, given the knowledge of the, those who's coming into it, but the larger catechism goes into more great detail. In regards to the mediator, it gives us a question, why should the mediator become, should be God? And by answer, he might sustain and keep human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. It continues. He might give worth and efficacy to his sufferings and obedience and intercession and to satisfy God's justice to procure his favor, to purchase a particular people, to give his spirit to them, to conquer all their enemies and his, and furthermore, to bring to them everlasting 
salvation. That's on the God side. The mediator should also take in part the man. And why so? It's so that he might, by answer from the larger catechism, advance our nature. Ah, perform perfect obedience to the law of God. To suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. To have a fellow feeling for our infirmities that we might receive the adoptions as sons and daughters and have comfort and access with the to the boldness onto the throne of grace all that encompassing in which god is sending his son to take the form of man the final piece to give it its complete gravitas is the name the title holder, that of the Messiah, which by our confession or catechism states by answer 42, our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above our measure and so set apart and to be fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, of priest, of king of his church and the estate of both his humiliation and his exaltation. Therefore, to bring this to a close and to establish this thought process further, the two properties being communicated should be seen together in Christ partaking in his office of being the mediator. For God has no blood and he doesn't suffer and he cannot be touched with hands god cannot lay down his life or god cannot even die and yet man in their state of sin and misery is utterly disposed disabled is the opposite of all that is spiritually good it's inclined to do nothing but evil and continue into it it was the Christ and the Christ alone being the true God and true man, the proper bridge to make the sufficient and efficacious work. Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. We went through 1 John. Bring this back to your recollection. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, let's segue, because after establishing that we can see through the communication of the two properties being seen in Christ, being the mediator and the covenant of grace, let's see the union now of the two natures. For the union that I speak of is the application of both natures 
at once. Now, we're going to be privy to many of these aspects of which the Christ self attests to his divinity throughout the Gospel of John. So, there's no need to provide that at this juncture. But nonetheless, to provide the quote-unquote established thought process, which is to see the union of the two properties. I bring your attention, if you have our Bibles, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians 15, and we will start at verse 21, and we will stop at 24, but I will come back and we will read 25 to 28. Of which, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 24 states, For since by a man's death, death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at, who are Christ at his coming. And then by verse 24, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to our God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Does that not sound somewhat familiar from what we were speaking of when I brought to you the answer and question format from the catechism lesson in regards to the mediator? And note here the union that's going to be extolled. His coming comes not slack, or it had no sustenance. It has meaning, of which Paul makes a very, very astute point. Granted, now he's moved by the Spirit to write this letter to the Corinthians, but by this chapter alone, can we actually see the union of the two natures at part? Let me convey more. By verse 21, we note here that death came by man. And given that in Adam all died, we know we are the posterity of Adam, of which if he died, we also take on that unfortunate curse. But then again, the latter portion of verse 21. But also by a man, the resurrection of the dead has come. And therefore, by the latter portion of verse 22, in Christ also we have been made alive. In light of the resurrection and the effect that it has on the believers, we will come to see as the scripture will show in clear point, especially in John 3, about the movement of the spirit, the being born again, that kind of verbiage, that kind of adage you heard through our catechism lesson today when we heard about the unity and the sacramental approach in regards to the essence of which the sacrament indwells, about Christ being the resurrection. It's very pointed and very clear. Christ 
raises from the dead, of which he can now lead people onto that same aspect of life. By verse 23, remember, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are of Christ at his coming. Now, all that being said, that by man we saw utter destruction, and by Christ we can see the resurrection, and I, albeit, as we already learned through John 1, in Christ is the essence of life. How is it so that he can just hand over the kingdom to God the Father? And by this statement is where I want to bring your attention for it solidifies that union aspect that I'm trying to show here. For in respects to his human nature, note, Christ is showing his inferiority to God from the human aspect. And you can see that through the economy of salvation in regards to the way he conveyed his relationship to his father. And we will come to that again and again and again in John. But as to the aspects of his divinity, however, it is a show and a proof upon which Christ is appointed and set as king upon his finished work in his earthly ministry. For just as God, while he was down here, again, I brought to your attention the answers um, by the questions we had brought earlier with Christ being the mediator and what it was needed for him to take that office. God the Father gave him charge to care for the people here, and he continues to care for them even upon his ascension and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. For upon that ascension, upon sitting at the right hand of God the Father in his resurrected body, particularly that same body that he died in, he has been crowned with glory and honor above all else. Hebrews 2, 7. You've made for him to be little while lower than the angels. But you have crowned him with glory and honor. And upon this honor comes a supreme authority over all to the powers that are for him and to the powers that oppose him. For Romans 13, 1, all government magistrates and their uh, statutes are all established by God. But what's the effect of it all? The effect of it all is this, that by Philippians 2, 10, every knee will bow, not just on earth, but also in heaven and also under the earth. You see, this union that I'm speaking of here should now actually provide some clarity as to why the Messiah must take on that office. It, without the office of mediator, 
you have no salvation. There is no bridge. For man lacked in what he was trying to do in obedience. But then God being too holy cannot stain himself with sin. So for Christ to take on that title and to be the mediator in the covenant of grace made everything in harmony. Quite profounding. Very profounding. As I said, we come to verse 24 here and as it shows with that handing over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule, authority, and power, Calvin elaborates on this some more. He states, and I'll paraphrase this for the sake of time as well, but I'll paraphrase this. As the world will have an end, so also will be governments and laws and distinctions of ranks and different orders of dignities and everything that is in nature. There will be no distinction between servant and master, king and peasant, magistrate and private citizen. Nay, there will be an end to angelic principalities in heaven, to the ministries and superiorities in the church. That why God may exercise his power and dominion by himself alone, not by the hands of men or angels. For it is true, the angels will continue to exist and they will also retain a distinction. Yet too, the righteous will also shine forth and everyone according to his measure of grace. But the, the angels will have resignation to their dominion and they were only exercised now in the name and by the commandment of God. As we now come to the next portion that I said I wanted to bring your attention to in 1 Corinthians 15, we come to verses 25 to 28, of which it reads, For he must reign now until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the father who put all things in subjection to him. By verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. So that God may be all in all. That right there is the union. That is the reasoning. So that God may be all in all. Calvin brought up a very good point in regards to having a clear understanding of Christ and taking part in the office of mediator. It's to the point that not, and I, I'll state this by verbatim, by not attending to the office of mediator, those 
who lack this understanding darken their genuine meaning for almost the whole doctrine which we read in the Gospel of John, entangling them to many snares. God has reason and logic and provides clarity in his word. It is us who misunderstands. He gives it with punctuality, he gives it with clarity, and he gives it with precision. Of which we should not find ourselves to be slack in trying to learn and attain the word. And again, it even goes back to the last sermon when I brought to you why I just did not want to tackle this in just one particular sermon. Because as I was learning and I was finding out more and more about this, it became very clear to me that from this particular doctrine, can you move forward as you move through the gospel to understand his dealings, why he can say what he says, and your faith should also be strengthened. Because again, he is showing full and well that by my work and taking upon an office that has been prepared, meticulous things have been done from the beginning of time. In fact, it's almost weird to see it from the beginning of time because we already made the argument from the first portion of John that he was there before the world began. And by the intro that I gave you and showing how Paul explains that in him we move and, and uh, have our being, it's almost an expectation that you can't lose sight as to the workings of how God works with his creation. So with that being said, and all be it, I'm going to read First John, I'm sorry, John 1, 14 again. Because come the next Lord's Day, we are actually going to dwell now into that piece. Because after laying this foundation, the words should become clear. And the word became flesh, as the scripture states, and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. And it's full of grace and full of truth. With all aspects being said and done with, when we do come back, I do hope that now with this all being cleared, when we come to this verse, we will take our time in regards to giving the exegesis. But then also... I'll be able to come back and give a full context, especially to show that unity between the Godhead and the manhood. And now going forward, it should be very clear why he needed to take on that office of mediator. Shall I now let our Lord our God in prayer.